0: you have a Bible this morning and you'll read with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of Romans chapter 2. The book of Romans chapter 2. And we'll begin in verse 1 of our scripture reading this morning and read down to verse 16. And I'd ask that you would pray for me this morning as I feel the need especially for the help of the Lord today to, to proclaim his word. Uh, but again, we'll read from Romans chapter 2 and we'll begin reading in verse 1 of that reading and read down to verse 16. It says this, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. For we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, Eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That'll conclude our reading this morning, that's reading Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 16, and our thought this morning is derived from verse 4, though we're going to look at more than just 4 in our scripture reading today. Uh, but our thought, or our title today, is derived from verse 4 where it says, Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The title of our message this morning is Despising God's Goodness. Despising God's Goodness. In truth, this thought of chapter 2 is really a continuation or just one part of a much bigger thought that the Apostle Paul is introducing here in the book of Romans. And that thought actually begins in chapter 1, where he begins to discuss after his introductory comments in the first 13 or 14 verses, um, he begins to say this in verse 16 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ... For it is the power of God unto salvation to every man that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, or in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So in this text, Paul is illustrating here that the gospel is something that is mightily important. Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, now as a reminder to you, the word gospel means good news. And so the gospel contains not just the whole Bible, but the gospel in truth is a specific part of, of the scriptures. It's a specific part of the truth which deals with the good news of Jesus Christ coming and essentially dealing with our sins and the opportunity for mankind to be saved by putting their faith in Christ. That aspect of the word of God is considered the gospel. And Paul tells us here that there is, God has revealed things to us. Now what he's going to get in in chapter one and the remainder of chapter one from the part we read from verse 17 onward is he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven not necessarily just through the gospel, but I would argue that what he is saying here is it is self-evident all around us that both within us, as he gets to in verse 20 of chapter one, that it is shown to us both God's wrath and his judgment through our own condemnation. Or in other words, whether a person has heard the gospel or not, whether a person has been explained the precepts of truth, Found in God's word, God has interwoven throughout this universe and primarily in the heart and the conscience of man that we, have fought, we are fallen in sin, that there is a standard which God has created, whether they recognize that it is God or not, that there is a standard which God has placed upon the heart of men, and when we break that standard, God through our conscience will accuse us of our sin, and we know that. We recognize around us the death and the fallen state of this universe. And as I mentioned some weeks ago, the older I get, the more that I see the depth of the depravity in the heart of man, but also the depth of fallenness in this sinful creation since Adam's fall. That is all around us. And if we only look at God's wrath or we only look at that self-evident part of the fallenness of mankind and the fallenness of the world, it leads people to hopelessness. Why do people commit suicide today? Why is suicide growing among young teenagers? I believe in large part the reason is that there is this, this idea that has been communicated that people who are religious who believe in an afterlife are just ignorant crossing their fingers and hoping in their hearts that it's all going to be okay, but it has been completely dismissed from any academic discussion today. And then when people don't enjoy this life to the extent that they wish they could, when people have hardship befall them, when pain and suffering seem to be their companions, and they look ahead and they say, in this life, that is all that I have to look forward to why would you want to live if in the afterlife there is nothing? And yet, that's the importance of the gospel. Is the gospel does two things. Number one, it puts what is self-evident to us in a proper context. It shows us, yes, this world is fallen. Yes, this world is full of pain. And may it it be an important thing upon our lips as adults that the more that we see our children grow and they begin to experience the teenage years as they get into young adulthood, may we articulate to them or perhaps prepare them to some degree the amount and the degree of pain and suffering that they might feel in this life. But let us all put it in the proper perspective it's going to happen there is a likelihood that in this room, young children are going to experience the loss of a child. The loss of a spouse. The loss of going through economic hardship that is perhaps at this moment... Something that you've never experienced, or those in your family have never experienced. All of those things, perhaps your health is going to decline to a, a standpoint that you say to yourself, "I don't even want to keep living if this is how I'm going to feel the rest of my life." Because that is how life can get hard. I've heard many people say before, "I just I don't want to live anymore. I I, I just want to go and be with the Lord." Life can get hard, but if we don't have the context of the scriptures and the gospel message, then we don't recognize that God permits suffering. God gives allowances for our hardship, ultimately for our good and for His glory and for the benefit of mankind around us. That these things are not beyond God's notice, but they're according to God's purpose. If lost people, if people who are without God in the world don't recognize that all of those things that God allows them to experience, if you're lost this morning and you have gone through tragedy and heartache, if you have experienced things which you said, I didn't even know that there was sensitivity in my heart and in my soul to experience such awful pain, I want you to know this morning that God, that those things did not happen to you without God's notice, but they were by His divine intervention that he had permitted those things for you to experience but why why did he have you experience those things well the gospel gives us revelation of that it shows us it helps us to better understand the context so the gospel shows us one hand the pain of sin the pain of heartache but then it shows us what it's meant to orient us towards And that is the hope that we can only find in Jesus Christ. As we were sitting here this week, and over and over, message after message was being delivered, not every message, not every devotional, but many of them, their attempt was just to reorient people back towards Jesus Christ. And the, not only necessity of Him, but the reality that only in Him is the hope for both lost people and saved people. The gospel reveals. So on one hand, we have our own experience, as well as the gospel revealing the fallenness of this world. And that's what Paul in the remainder of this chapter begins to show. How far that this world can fall in sin. But the gospel also reveals the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. The hope that people can really have a real hope. That people can have found in him. That every deficit that you might have in this life can be found in Jesus Christ. The gospel reveals that and that's the beginning of this whole idea that Paul is putting forward. Is the gospel is meant to be a revelation. To show forth something. Something. Now he begins to list off here in the end of chapter one all the awful things that people without God can do, and it seems as you take a step from each verse, it just gets lower and lower and lower into darkness and depravity that can be found in the human heart. And what could be the case for those of us that are, for those people rather that are lost is you can look and you can begin to judge people. That's the natural tendency whenever we see people. Caught up in sin is in our fallen nature. Subliminally, often we have this sense of self righteousness that is that that equips us with these thoughts of 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 just telling us how good that we are, that we're not like these people, and because we're not like these people, we deserve less judgment and condemnation and punishment and wrath than these people do. But lost friend, today, if you're here by the grace of God and you're hearing the sounds of the gospel. And you're being revealed the truth. And you're surrounded by God's people. I want to do what the apostle Paul does here. And that is give you caution in feeling this comfort. That because you don't sin to the same degree that these people do. That somehow you're going to rest under less wrath or condemnation than these people. You don't. The wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all people who don't put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul begins in chapter 2 after he has finished listing these horrible things that mankind can fall into, anticipating the self-justification that we might have when we hear this list. He says this, Thou art inexcusable, O man, thou that judgest, because you do the same thing. You say, what? I don't. You begin to read in verses 25 onward, actually before that, but 25 through verse 32 in chapter 1, you say, I don't do these things. I'll be careful. Be very careful. Where does sin come from? Where does sin, when we commit sin, where does it come from in you? You see, we can witness sin when it is performed in the actions and in the deeds. But that rather is the manifestation of something that is the root of it. Sin comes forth from our hearts. Jesus strove strenuously in the Sermon on the Mount, I spent a considerable amount of time in chapter 6 of the book of Matthew illustrating this very point. He begins to talk about someone who commits adultery. And he says, you've heard it being said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's certainly true. We shouldn't commit adultery. And those who are promiscuous in this life, uh, who are fornicators and commit adultery or other sexual sins, those are things that ought to be condemned. But let me tell you this morning, that sin did not originate in the action. It originated before that in the heart of man. And the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. All three of those sins originating in the selfishness of the heart of man. There's not a person here this morning that has not sinned in all three of those manners. Not only some distant time, but often, daily, weekly, fallen prey to those sins. Paul is here saying as you stand on this platform of judgment looking down your noses at these be awful careful. There's no excuse for it. You know, in a, in a, a world oriented around excuses I mean really, our culture is oriented around excuses. And unfortunately it's infected our minds that even we that are saved that know the truth can begin to, to function on a paradigm of excuses trying to escape the judgment of our own sin. But that's not how Christians ought to act. Right? Christians ought to be as such... That when we do wrong, when we sin, boast of thought, or rather of action, of, of word, or of thought, we ought not to try to escape it through excuses, comparing ourselves by ourselves, but we ought to stand in acknowledgement, in confession of sin, both by, in front of God and when necessary, other people, and say, yes, I am guilty of sin. Why is that important? Lost people need to hear our sins so they recognize their sin. When you hear someone get up and confess sin that is much less stigmatized than your own, does it not create guilt and condemnation in your own heart? Somebody does something that you say, you know, that's I don't even that's so little, I don't even process it as a sin. And yet this person is broken because of their offense before God. And if that's the case, then what is my sin? There's coming a day where there will be no excuses. Why? Why won't there be any excuses? Well, Paul tells us. He says this in verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to the truth. You know, people often elevate this position as a preacher or a pastor to a place they shouldn't, and they begin to look and think that we have some secret power over sin. I'm here to tell you, if you had any, you already know this because I've been here more than a year, right? Uh, That's not the case at all. No matter what religious figure, no matter what kind of platform that you put them on, no matter how holy and no matter how much God has used them in your life in the past, no person, every single person is, in, is fallible and fallen and given to temptation in the same form of weaknesses that you are. And it can often be the case that parents, some, those in authority over you, religious figures, those who have a certain degree of authority over you, can by their own weakness... So, for example, I get up and I try to preach every single week. But let me tell you, there are going to be deficits in my preaching. There are things based on my fallen nature that I will not preach on. Not intentionally, but because perhaps it hits too close to home. Perhaps I don't recognize that I'm skirting over something that I ought not to. And it can give us a false sense of security in our righteousness. But here, God tells us something about him. That far separates him from his creation. God judges in truth all the time. For multiple reasons. Number one, he sees everything with pristine clarity. As human beings, we have fallible minds. So even if we have all the things before us, our judgment is skewed because our minds are fallen. But the reality is we don't have all the information before us. Because most sin is hidden. Right? Is not most of your sin hidden from other people? Absolutely it is. You don't act out all of the sinful thoughts and all of the sinful things that come out of your heart. The darkness that really resides there. But recognize lost, friend. That God sees your sin and your wickedness of heart, those, emo- those things that you dwell on that you ought not to, God sees those with pristine clarity. And though you, to ease your own conscience, might quickly pass over those things, might purposely try to forget the depths of those things that you have thought and those things that you have done in private, God sees those things, and on the day of judgment, God is not going to just passively walk over those things. God is not going to set you next to a whole bunch of other people and say, well, you're looking better than them. And the Bible tells us this, that he is going to set you next to his son's righteousness. And by that standard, you will be judged. Every action, every word, every thought of your heart. You know, if God revealed the truth of his judgment, and there was no hope for me in this life, I don't know what I would do. And here's what I mean by that. If I knew that my sins were going to be rewarded with what I deserved for them, and there was no escape, what would you do? When my father died, I had intrusive thoughts. (laughs) I couldn't get rid of him. The magnitude of reality was so great that even sleep could not get me away from the thoughts. I would never see him again. That was what kept going through my mind. I'll never, ever see him again on earth. And no matter what I did, If I thought, if I tried to think about something, if somebody made me laugh, if if I was doing something I enjoyed, and for about a split second I would stop thinking about it, it would then just come right back. And part of the mourning process is is slowly winning off of that, where that's not such an intrusive thought. But let me tell you something of even greater weight than the death of a family member. Imagine if you knew that a holy God you are going to stand before him and you must stand in judgment and you're going to get exactly what you deserve and that there was no hope in this life to escape it. What would you do? I mean, I feel as though that That thought, I would I would be in such deep depression. But then, at the same time, I would be like those men that the Bible says you would want to eat, drink, and be merry for all that you have in this life is the only pleasure you're ever going to experience for all of eternity. And so, I want to be happy because this would be the only pleasure I would ever have. Yet, how can I be knowing the daunting reality facing me? God knows the truth about you and you're going to get what you deserve the anticipation is very often worse than the reality you know you ever had something you know I remember minister school I guess is just on my mind having to uh, last year the first year doing minister school I was so nervous you know uh to conduct all the things, and it was COVID year, and everybody had opinions about COVID, and and I said, this is just a lose-lose situation, you know, there's just no way that we're going to, I'm going to be able to do the right things and say the right things, and I couldn't sleep, you know, the night before, I just, I could not sleep at all. You've all had experiences like this, and and I knew even while I was going through it, the anticipation is going to be worse than the reality. You know, once you get up there, and the first things that are said, and you get things going, it's all going to be, and it was, it was fine after that. But it was that, you know, your mind just, I don't know, it just does this, this thing to you where you... You know, as much as it would be tempting to say that the anticipation of God's judgment is worse, it's not. As paralyzed as you might be in anxiety and depression knowing you're going to face your sin and judgment, as much it may control... If that were the case, that we had no hope, and depress you, that anticipation could never be as awful as the reality of facing your sin before God. I've said this before, but it comes to my mind. I am saved by God's grace, and I am so grateful that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to me. And when I stand before a holy God, I will stand in a state having been justified, having been forgiven. And yet I'm I'm still fearful. There is still a part of me that knows me and almost imagines it's too great to be true the awfulness of my own sin, and that despite all of that, and that, you know, even when I want to stop, I can't. I can't stop sinning. I want to stop sinning. I want thoughts. Have you ever had thoughts in your mind, and you say, I don't want to have these thoughts, Lord. Please take them away. And yet the fallen mind, the, the Adamic nature, just forces them upon you. And thoughts of pride just lift you up and lift you up in your mind. You say, Lord, I don't want to have this. I don't want to be this way. And there it comes back. Oh, that's why I know by experience what Paul was saying. When he was indicating, I just can't escape sin for everything I do. There it is with me. When I seek to do good, sin is just a part of me. I still, when I consider the judgment of a holy God and the blackness of my sin, it just seems too good to be true that I'm going to stand before him and be justified. And yet that's why I love Christ so much. That's why I want to tell the whole world about His goodness. It's because as daunting as judgment might be, and the fact that verse 2 tells us, He will do it with truth. Nothing will escape God Almighty. You can stand before Him justified. You can stand before Him free of condemnation. And read verse three four five and six, and I'll be done today. It says this, "And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the thing, doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God." He's, he's pointing out hypocrisy here. He says, "Well, you're on your platform of judgment, looking down at people. Why are you doing that? Is it because you think you're going to escape? Do you think that when you judge others for the very same thing you are doing, do you think somehow you're just going to escape God's judgment? That's one possible reason you might stand in judgment of somebody. Here's a second possible reason Paul gives of why you might stand in harsh judgment of other people for their sins. Or... Despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? You know that word despiseth. I think it's better to say, do you not regard? Are you not taking in consideration God's goodness? God's forbearance and his patience. Are you not appreciating By acting upon reality. I think that we find in the scriptures, you know, when we think about judgment, I think people have an erroneous view of the judgment. Although I'll confess to you today, I don't think that I have it figured out, not at all. But I think there's this erroneous view of judgment by the world, that when they think of God's judgment or they think of what is it, Revelation 20 or 21, where the great white throne judgment and God is there, and all of creation, all of the world is standing before him. I think people have this idea that the first person he's going to call forward, and I think this was partially done by Dante's Inferno, you know, a historical work that went through all the layers of hell, and they tried to, to say, you know, here's the least, uh, the least wrathful, or the, the, the least painful tier of hell and if I remember right it's been a long time since I read there's like 13 layers of hell and this is reserved for these people and this layer is reserved for these people and then you get to the bottom and if I remember right there were three men I can't remember all three men but I remember one of them was Judas and so I think people have this grand imagination that there we are in the halls of God's judgment and God has this hierarchy of sinners And the first one he calls before him is Satan. And the second one is Judas. And the third one is Hitler. And the fourth one is Stalin. And he's going to go through all these lists of men who have committed to us unthinkable atrocities. I'm just not sure that's the way it's going to work. I'm just not sure that's the way it's going to work. Because what we find in scriptures is that God gives judgment according to privilege. Judgment according to privilege. Why do you think even in our text, he says the Jew first and also the the Gentile? Well, he tells us later in chapter 2 and chapter 3, what's the difference between the Jew and the Gentile? He says, a lot. But here was the difference. To one had been granted what he uses the words, the oracles of God. Or in other words, they had been given the truth of who God was and His righteousness all the Old Testament. Prophets were sent to them. Priests told them the truth. The Old Testament was given and spoken among those people. And so they knew God. They knew rather of God. They were revealed who He was Over and over and and all throughout their life, the way that they lived and the lifestyle they lived was all meant to point towards a God whom they could come to know because it had been testified to them about Him. And all through the scriptures we read in, in the scriptures where Capernaum is one who is going to stand under great judgment. Why? Because Jesus performed miracles all through Capernaum. And guess what? The people didn't want to hear Him in those towns. Here's what I'm trying to say this morning. I believe, rather than thinking of just the worst atrocities and those people are going to be judged, judgment will be according to privilege. And let me ask you a question this morning. Who is more privileged than us? What people on the face of the earth is more privileged than the people sitting in this room right here? You you hear about the top 1%? You know the top one percent of income earners, and people have created this this fairy tale of how they're all on the top of the world, and and all the rest of us are just slaves serving. You know. Well, let's change that from wealth, and let's make it spiritual wealth. And you tell me who's at the top one percent? The truth. We have. God's revelation given to us. We have, through God's grace, been placed in a church and amongst a people, amongst a fellowship, where men and women teach us the truth and have experienced the truth in their own hearts and in their own lives. Not only that, because you can find that in places different in the world that we heard this week at our missions conference. You can go to Belize and you can find the truth. You can go to Kenya. You can go to Ghana. You can go all different places throughout the world that we have heard about. And yet I would argue that still our privilege surpasses even those that have the truth. Because we have the privilege of truth without being under duress. The hardest thing I had to do this morning was open my eyes. That was the hardest thing I had to do this morning. I was tired. That was it. That was the hardest thing. To come amongst God's people and sing and worship and have the freedom to open his word. Lost friend here today, let me tell you something. You have hit the lottery and you sit among the most privileged people in the world. You cannot go to any other place in the whole world and find more privilege than sitting in the house of God with God's people who know Him and can reveal a greater portion of His righteousness and truth than what you'll find right here. And that is the cr- truth. And God will judge fairly. And He judged according, judges according to privilege. Let me ask you this question who will stand in the greatest judgment on that final day? Do you despise God's goodness? That's what Paul's asking. Do you despise your privilege? Or uh, let's not use... that, That word insinuates like a hatred for. And I don't think that's what he's trying to say. I think he's saying not regarding, right? He's not saying, I don't think many of you or any of you that are lost here are saying, you know, I just hate the fact that I have the knowledge of the truth. I just hate the fact that God has put me here. I don't think that's the case. But is it through negligence that you don't appreciate it? Is it through the lack of pursuing God's grace And his mercy that reveals the fact that you don't appreciate it. He gives us two examples. I I think this is what he's doing here. And I'll let you determine on your own what he's doing here. But he says, do you not regard the riches of his goodness? I think the next two things that he says here are examples of his goodness that he's talking about. Maybe he's talking about all three on equal planes. But I think what he's saying is this. Do you despise the riches of his goodness? For example his forbearance, and long-suffering. It's a frustrating thing. Whenever I was lost, I I think, and I I can't remember the timeline exactly, I think I was lost for about a year and a half or so. And I became very frustrating to me. I thought I sought the Lord sufficiently. I'll put it that way. I thought I did, you know. And yet I wasn't being saved, and and I kind of became a little bitter towards God periodically. Thinking, everything's good on my end, what's the problem on your end? I never actually had that explicit thought, but that's, that was the attitude of my heart. And now as somebody who's been saved, my attitude has changed quite, quite a bit. Looking back at that. And I recognize that here's the attitude of a grateful heart one that appreciates God's goodness and forbearance. You seek the Lord. You spend an hour, 30 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, whatever it is, 2 minutes seeking the Lord, and you don't get saved. And yet for various reasons, exhaustion, not being in the right state of heart and mind, you decide to stop. And Satan can, can, can pervert the mind to the extent that you make a little another tally of good, Of God's disappointments. Here's another time, God disappointed me. I think the attitude of someone who is not saved that really appreciates what God has done is saying this Lord, I didn't find you as I sought you this time, but thank you for for preserving me another day that I could seek until I found you. And God, if it would be according to your grace and your mercy, to protect me in the hollow of your hand, in the cleft of the rock, for just another few moments until I find you. I would be so appreciative, God. You see the difference in attitude? You see the humility in recognizing that it is only God's forbearance and his long-suffering. It's his goodness that is leading you to repentance. Repentance. What if you got what you deserved? What if the privileged, ungrateful heart, is there anything that sets you off more angry than seeing a rich kid complain about some luxury they can't have? That fires me up. That gets me upset. When I think of these poor kids in Africa that I went and saw, that when I gave them one little tiny square starburst, their exuberation, their, their excitement was beyond words. And if some kid can't have some grand 16th birthday party or a nice, uh, a nice Jaguar for a vehicle that their parents wouldn't indulge them, they just, they don't appreciate it. And yet, what about from a spiritual vantage point? Just because you don't get what you want, when you want, it's not indicative of God not liking you. No, it's indicative that your fallen heart is not seeing things the way they really are. And that is you're not saved because there is something in your heart unwilling to submit. Because God's forbearance and his long suffering is evident in just giving you the health and the strength. I'll tell you something about myself. God has, has blessed me immensely in this life up to this point of having very good health. And I so appreciate that. I mean, I really appreciate the health God has given me. The strength that he has given me. But here's something that happens to me. I, I, there, I go for a prolonged period of time and I get to complaining to God about my life. If I'm being honest with you, I can, I can find anything to complain about. Trust me, I mean, I, I, I can find it. Even if my life is going perfect, I can find something. In my heart, I didn't say I say it out loud because it would be too obvious. In my heart, I can find something to complain about. And then sometimes I get sick. And here's my favorite type of sickness that God gives me, Okay. Something that is very minor, but begins to control me. Let me give you an example. I was in Belize. I've laughed about this a a number of times, the the whole experience, and I won't share it now. But when I was in Belize, we we got in this river, and we were doing things in this river, having some fun in this river. and, And I guess, I don't even remember doing it, but I guess while I was walking, I stubbed my pinky toe. And Doc Collins from Fairview Memorial was there and, and he took a look at it and he got real concerned. He thought it was broken, then he thought it was infected, and then he thought he was going to have to amputate it. I thought, wow, that, that just that escalated quickly, <laughs> right? It was just my pinky toe. And here I was here for the spiritual reason, wonderful things were going on. But I remember uttering almost humorously to the Lord, Lord, if you'll just heal my pinky toe, I'll appreciate it. You ever do that? You ever have sinuses? I know you have because you live in Bowling Green, right? And, and it's just so hard and frustrating for a couple weeks. And then you think, man, I almost forget what it's like not to have it. But When I get through this, I'm going to appreciate not having this. My favorite is when God reminds me of his goodness, by plaguing with me with something so minor that becomes so controlling to recognize just how wholly dependent I am upon His grace for my state of mind and my state of being. God only has to tweak the pinky toe of your life. That's all He has to do. And can't it change everything about your mind? Can't it change everything about how you think and how you function? I'll tell you today, if you're here and lost... It is only by God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering that you will ever be saved. Every aspect of your life is, 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 I'll use a word from Colossians, is sustained by the word of his power. Verse 5. That after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath. So instead of being grateful for his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, there are people who document his failures to them. Oh, and Christians, we've got to be careful here. have got to be really careful of making a, 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 a subconscious list of all the ways that God fails us. Listen, that's a perversion of your mind, not reality. He says, those of you that don't appreciate, you're treasuring up for yourself, storing up for yourself more wrath on the day of judgment because you're responding that way. Verse 6, and then I'm done. Who will render to every man according to his deeds? I love that. Everything in the final judgment will be fair. He'll re- render to every man. He'll give you what you deserve. I love, what is it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, who, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteous, I'm not going to quote that correctly, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him, We imputed to Christ our sin. He imputed to us His righteousness. And He stood guilty, cursed, condemned before the Father on the cross that I might stand justified. Lost friend today, I come with a a word of warning to you. Don't underappreciate, don't despise the riches of God's goodness to you. Rather, I recognize I am a privileged man. You are a privileged person. And I'll tell you, if it is not the governing aspect of my life, it is is a supreme one, that that privilege, that privilege runs through my mind often. I am fascinated here in a few weeks, hopefully, I'll have a map up on my wall. I'd encourage you all someday to come in there and see It's about 10 foot by 7 foot, something like it. It's real big, huge map. And I love it because it's a reminder of my privilege. That's what it is. That's why I love it. Because I look at the vast world that we live in of 8 billion people. And I see my privilege look at that map from time to time, and I say, God, even my moments of greatest discouragement and despair, encourage me to use my privilege for the welfare of other people. Drives me. Motivates me. Lost friend today, if you're in need of the Lord, you are if you're lost. Let's have a song. I pray that you would capitalize upon your privilege my privilege makes me want to be obedient. It, it compels me, impels me to be obedient. Right? If you're lost here today, this altar is open. If you need to come and pray, I'm giving you an invitation this morning. You don't need it for me, but I'm going to offer it anyway. If you feel God drawing your heart to Him, won't you come and surrender all? Won't you come and pray this morning? Let's all stand and sing.